This morning, I would invite you, if you have a Bible with you, there's also one up front under your, right underneath you up front in the uh, chairs. You're welcome to use one. And uh, we're going to, the visual Bible's pretty lengthy this morning, so I'm just going to read a portion of this. Our text is very long this morning. I'm kind of just going to kind of walk you through the story. And so I'll be reading a little bit of this, and then you can just kind of follow along as I talk through the story this morning. Let me just say, before we look at that, just a word of review. Uh, Pastor Jim shared last Sunday, beginning in, in chapter 21, and he talked about experience Paul had there with some of the believers. And it was interesting because, you know, as you, as you go through the whole book of Acts, you begin to see these people popping up again. And we ran into a guy named Philip. He was one of the seven that was chosen in the very early part of Acts. And then all of the you know, disciples get scattered, and we don't hear about him until now in chapter 21 of Acts, and we find he's in this area called Caesarea. He has four daughters. They're all unmarried, and they all prophesied, is what it tells us. And so here's what they call Philip the Evangelist, and he's just continuing to do his thing uh, in another part of the world. And so we see there's probably many, many of those stories uh, repeating themselves as, as Christianity spreads here from Jerusalem out across Asia and Europe and eventually to all the ends of the earth. We have here the, this guy named Agabus who comes and he makes a prediction that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound. And you know the story, we read it last week. If he weren't here, he takes out his belt, wraps it around uh, his wrists, and says, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem. And so, of course, the response of all the believers is, Paul, you can't go. This is, this is not good. This is dangerous. Uh, you, could, you could lose your life on this venture. And Paul asks the question. It's very interesting. He looks at me and says, why are you guys breaking my heart? Why are you weeping for me? And this was very emotional for Paul. He says, why are you guys breaking my heart? Because as Paul looked at all these Christians weeping and begging him to stay, it was breaking his heart. He said, don't you understand that this is my life? This is what I've been called to. Every city I've gone to, there's been danger, there's been imprisonment, there's been mobs, there's been people. And so what's different about this? This is God's call on my life. Just because something's dangerous doesn't mean it's not God's will. And so... That's the setting here that we have uh, as Paul here now heads out to Jerusalem and sets his face there, knowing that this guy, Agabus, probably knew what he was talking about, that the Spirit of God was speaking through him, and this was not going to be an easy trip. And so he heads out here. We see chapter 21, verse 17. He said, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he arrives here, and every, the people there greet him warmly. It's probably a fairly small group, because there's a very large group now, as we'll soon learn, of people that have come to believe. And what Paul does is he does a God at work. He gets up and he talks about all the things that God had done on this missionary journey, and, and the people were amazed. And it says that they, they praised God here. It says, when they heard it, they glorified God. This is verse 20. And they said to him, 
You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, their walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? So there's a problem. There's this rumor circulating. And they didn't have a problem with the, the Gentiles not following all the Jewish customs. What they had a problem with, and, and by the way, they also didn't, they were also weren't saying that the law was part of what is necessary for salvation. But what they were ticked off about was they felt that wherever Paul went, when a Jewish person converted to Christianity, he would tell them, you guys don't need to do any of the customs. You can drop the traditions. They're no longer uh, important in your life. And in some ways, they felt like Paul was kind of destroying their ethnicity, you know, that they were Jews and this was part of their life. And so there were some very hard feelings here. It says they are all zealous for the law. So what then is to be done? Well, as you read on there, what, here's what happens. There are, this is the plan, and this is what they tell Paul. They say, Paul, there's four guys here, and they're in the middle of this. It was, what it was, it was a vow. It was probably a Nazarite vow. People would take about 30 days. They would not drink wine. They would not uh, eat any grapes even. They would not cut their hair, and then after 30 days, they would cut their hair, shave their heads, and then go in and be purified. So here were these four guys. They were about ready to shave their head. And they said, Paul, here's the plan. Why don't you shave your head along with these guys and enter into this vow with them and then go in for the purification process, which was several days. And then the Jews will look at you and say, well, see, Paul is going along with our customs. And the interesting thing is that Paul doesn't. And... <clears throat> You have to understand Paul, because Paul would never do anything to add to the gospel. If they were saying, you need to do this as part of salvation, uh, he would have gone to the wall. There's no way he would have done that. But because it wasn't part of salvation, Paul also would compromise anything for the sake of the gospel. And so if Paul doing this, if, if that would result in the Jews of that day, you know, allowing him to speak the gospel and not creating tension, Paul was willing to do anything. He was willing to sacrifice his rights. He didn't have to do this vow, but he was willing to sacrifice anything for the sake of the gospel. And so that's the situation. So Paul goes ahead and does this. They're getting near the end of it, and it doesn't work. They weren't even through the purification process, and some Jews from Asia came down, as you read through the text here this morning, they stirred up the people and they ran in and they grabbed Paul and they dragged him into the temple and they shut the gates. And basically they were in, in the, uh, they were basically killing him is what they were doing. The guards came rushing in and basically rescued Paul, picked him up and began to take him out. And it's, what we find here is that it's in the context of this that Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'd, I'd like to talk to the people. And so what happens is, is that you know, they, they seized him and the guards are now protecting him and they came up and put a couple chains around him. 
Uh, it says, verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, others another, uh, and everyone was saying something different. And so finally Paul says, I, I would like to talk to the crowd. And so he begins, and with chapter 22, brothers and fathers, hear the defense I now make before you. And he tells the whole story. And it says that the crowd got really quiet. Like it was very quiet. All of a sudden, this crowd, because the story was really quite fascinating. But here was Paul, who was a Jew, who was zealous in destroying the church. And he talked about the fact that many of the people that he imprisoned died. He's literally on the attack against Christianity, and then something happens on this road to Damascus that transforms the life of this man. And he encounters the living Christ in a vision on that road. And I think it was as real as if he had met him uh, in person. In some sense it was. It was an incredibly power ex powerful experience for this man by the name of Paul. And so he talks about how, you know, how that transformed his life. And how he, he went into Damascus... And he, he goes on and he tells the whole story of everything that happened. And then in verse 21, everything was quiet till this point. And he talked about the fact that the Lord had spoken to him. And he says, and he said to me, verse 21, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And when he said that, literally everything broke loose. And again, the people came and mobbed him and said the soldiers had to lift him up to get him out of the crowd. And again, the crowd was so upset. What we see here is the, we hit, really see the racism of these people. They hated the Gentiles. They didn't feel the Gentiles were worthy of the gospel. And the scriptures are very clear that God shows no partiality with people. Races, people, uh, it doesn't matter. God is totally impartial. Powerful, powerful story. And so, as we look at, the, this, as we look at it this morning, there are, there are really a couple of points that, that I, would, I would like to make. And the first one is to explain what's going on here in the text. Why is this writer, Luke, including this? And what we have beginning now is we have six chapters, 200 verses of the trials that Paul goes through. There are five trials. They will be covered in six chapters, which is a pretty big, you know, almost 20% of the book here is going to be on these trials that Paul is going to go through as a result of this experience in Jerusalem. So why, you know, why this shift in the letter? Why does Luke spend all this time? I, I think it's more than the fact that he was interested in history. He's recording this, but there's something else here behind this. And I really believe that what, what, what Luke is doing here in, in including this is that he's writing now both for, he knows that both Jewish and Gentile audiences are going to read this. He knows that Jewish audiences are going to read this. And I think what we have is this. I think we have an apologetic for the validity of Christianity. This is an apologetic for the validity of Christianity. And what Luke is demonstrating here, because you're going to see all through these next five to six chapters, it is the Romans. 
that are defending Paul. Paul's on trial. They are protecting him. Even though they put him in prison, they are really, literally protecting this man. We're going to see on several occasions that they declare him innocent, that there is much that is being spoken about Christianity and Paul, which is not true. And so this stands as a powerful apologetic that even the pagan Romans are declaring that Paul is innocent and that he's not worthy of any kind of condemnation. We're going to see here, there's going to be a mock, we see here this mock trial in which they just about killed Paul. He'll go before the Sanhedrin. He'll go before a couple of proconsuls, Felix and Festus, and then lastly, he will go before King Agrippa. As you look through the book of Acts, you will see this repeated again and again. In Philippi, they came and apologized for beating Paul. They found out he's a Roman citizen. In Corinth, they refused to hear the case the Jews brought. In Ephesus, it was the town clerk that got up and said, when they brought him, they said, this guy's innocent. In fact, you are the ones that are pushing the line here on inciting a riot and trying to go around the law. And so we see repeatedly the Romans here are advocates and protectors of Paul. Actually, the, the parallels between Christ and Paul here are amazing. They really are. We remember that Jesus Christ set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we see that Paul here now is setting his face to Jerusalem. And just listen to these similarities. They both had five different trials. Jesus Christ went through five trials. Paul goes through five trials. They were both slapped in the face and beaten. Both of them went through the same experience. Both three times were declared innocent by the authorities of their day. Both of them had crowds yelling for his death and uh, screaming to, to end their life. And eventually, both of them would lose their lives. This was the beginning. Paul would be taken on to Rome. And although it's not recorded, Luke doesn't end here telling us the death of Paul. It was there that Paul would eventually be killed. Christianity can be attacked. It can be declared false and invalid. But those attacks don't hold water. That is the message. Even pagan authorities recognize that that is true. Well, this morning, <clears throat> I want to kind of go to a, a secondary application as, as, as we kind of bring, bring about application on this Father's Day. And I just want to say a few words about it <clears throat> this morning. The Apostle Paul's life <clears throat> is a great model for us. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I have a little problem with Paul because it's hard to relate to Paul. This man lived such a focused life, such an impassioned life. He was willing to sacrifice so much that, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me sometimes to identify with this man. Uh, <clears throat> just his pursuit of, of God's call on his life is, is quite amazing. And, you know, I, I feel like it's in a different league. I feel like Paul's kind of a Christian Olympian here. And... Uh, <clears throat> I don't know where I am, but I'm, I'm not anywhere near what Paul is. 
the other hand, Paul was a human being just like us. He had a special call. I think he had a special empowerment in his life. But I, I still think his life sets forth a model for each one of us as we see him, you know. He knew, he knew what was coming in Jerusalem. And yet he, he sets his face there and, you know, even his best friends are trying to talk him out of it. And nobody can talk him out of doing what he feels God is calling him to do. <clears throat> and so here's the point I, I want to make this morning that I'd like you to take uh, with you. To be a man of God is to know what God, is to know what God wants. <clears throat> it's to know what God wants and to not run away from it. To know what God wants for your life and to not run away from that. What does it mean to know what God wants you to do in your life? Well, <clears throat> God wants the same thing from you that he wanted from Paul. Same thing for me, same thing for Paul, same thing <clears throat> for you. The same thing, man or woman here today, for all of us. And I believe this is it. And Jesus made it simple for us. We tend to make things very complicated. Jesus made it very simple. <clears throat> this is what he said. He said, your purpose simply is this. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every part of your being. It's to love God. And that's a pretty simplified version. <clears throat> but here's the progression. Number one. And this is very important. <clears throat> this is a very important progression as you go through Scripture. The first one is this. The first one is that you receive the love that God has for you. This is like the foundation upon which you build your house. And if you don't build your house on this foundation, the house will collapse. And many people miss this one. Many people miss this one. Many people go out and jump to trying to love God. And the scriptures make it very clear that we can't do that. The scriptures tell us, and here's the verse from John himself, an old man who was, who'd gotten pretty wise in his old years. And he said this simple little verse, we love him because what? Because he first loved us. We demonstrate love for God because we have come to understand that He first loved us. And you will never love God without first receiving the love that He is seeking to pour into your life. I think, I mean, I think this was the key to Paul's passion. I think this is why Paul was so passionate. I don't think it was that Paul was such a I don't think it had to do with Paul. I think it had to do with an insight that, that God had given to Paul into who he was and what he had in store for him and his love for Paul. And I think it was so powerful in his life. As you read through Paul's book to the Ephesians, when he gets right to the, the end of chapter 3, and he's going to start now to talk in chapter 4 about how to love your wife and how to love your children and how to love your boss. And, and how to live out the Christian life. Right before that, he prays this prayer. He says, I pray that by God's Spirit in your inner being, 
you might know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God that you might be filled up to the very fullness of God. You can't, you can't live out the Christian life without building that foundation. And the most important thing that you and I can do is to allow ourselves to grasp the bigness of God, the, the massiveness of God, who created this universe and universes we can't even see, and to realize that that God has loved you, and that that God values your life, and values your spirit, and values your relationship, and would go to the cross to develop and build that relationship. Many of us have heard that many, many, many times, but it says that truth grips our hearts and it becomes a reality to us that we can move on and do what God's called us to do. How many times do you pray in your, in your prayer list, how often do you pray that God would enable you to grasp His love for you? That should be on the top of your prayer list every day when you get up to say, God, help me to see today how deeply you love me. And to pray that God would give you that insight because it will transform your life. Then the Lord says, now I want you, you know, we love him because he first loved us. We receive his love. Then we are called to abide in his love, to live in that love. How do we do that? Jesus says, you obey my commands. Well, what are your commands? Jesus said, it's very simple. Love one another. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Love one another. And so, what we find is the call on every man's life, on every person's life, as I talk to men here today on this Father's Day, the call on our lives is to live a life of love. That's what we're to do. We are called to live a life of love. For Paul, that meant being an apostle. Uh, he was not an administrator. He was not simply a teacher. He was not a pastor. There are many times when people want Paul to stay and pass them. He said, no, I've got to move on. I've got to call on my life. I have to spread the good news of the gospel to all the Gentiles. And so he went on three missionary journeys. And as a result of his obedience, Christianity spread all over Asia and into Europe. Paul accomplished, what he accomplished in ten years was phenomenal. But he had a specific call to share the riches of God's grace with the Gentiles. So what's God's call for you? Well, you know, short term, it's every day. We get up and say, God, how can I love the people in my life today? My wife, if you're married, my children. How can I love the people I run into that walk in my office, that I may come across on the street, that I may be sitting next to when I'm waiting for my tire to get changed? You know, there's a very specific short term. God's call is to live a life of love wherever you find yourself and with whomever you find yourself. On a bigger scale, you know, God has made you with certain strengths and gifts and passions and, and abilities. Uh, you know, one of the parts of our, our vision that we have just established over these last months is we want people to know how they are gifted, how God has wired them, how can they most effectively serve God and what is God's call for their life? You know, if you're here today and you're just kind of, you can't answer that question, it's an important question. It's an important question to live out the life that God is calling you to live. 
There's an amazing drama that's being played out in this world. And it's God's drama. And you have a piece. You have a part. God is calling you to be a part of that drama. And it's much bigger than yourself. So, to be a man of God is to know what God's calling you to do. And in essence, that's to live a life of love with your gifts, your abilities, your strengths, with the people that God places in your life. And to not run from it. That's the second piece here. To not run from it. I've always enjoyed, uh, I believe it was Larry Crabb who started off one of his books with this illustration of something that, that he experienced as a young boy. And he was just starting Little League. And uh, you know how it is in Little League? You get up, you know, you're, you're used to hitting the ball off the uh, t-ball stand, and now somebody, somebody's throwing it at you. And you start to get up, and, and he would swing the bat, strike one, strike two, strike three, and he'd sit down. And he wanted so badly to get to the first base. So one day he, he just had this idea, and he got up, and he put the bat on his shoulder, and he just crouched down a little bit, and the first ball came in. Ball one! So he said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to swing the bat. So the next pitch came in, strike one. He crouched it down a little lower. Ball comes in. Ball two, strike one. Next pitch comes in, strike two. He crouches down a little lower, holds the bat. Ball three, ball four. For the first time, he makes it to first base. And he said, I found out that the way to get on base is not to swing the bat. <laughs> and Larry Crabb takes an illustration. He said, you know, for many years, that's the way I lived my life. If you don't swing at the ball, you can't. You know, at least you're not going to go down striking out. And you just might get on the base. And what I'm saying this morning is that's not the way God has called us. That's not the way God has called us as men to live our lives. God would rather have you go down swinging. Because if you keep swinging at the ball, eventually you're going to get a piece of it. And eventually you're going to learn to hit it. And so we, you know, there's something wrong in a relationship and we move into it and it blows up. You ever had that happen, guys? Every guy's had that happen. And so we go, ho-ho, I'm not going there again. <laughs> well, what did you learn from that? You know, maybe that was a curveball. You know? A gal can send you a curveball. Did you know that? And so you have to learn that, you know, you have to learn how to hit the ball. You have to learn how to love in relationships. Uh, sometimes that means risk. Sometimes that means failure. Sometimes that means it doesn't work. And probably that's one of the most difficult things for us to do. But our call is to live a life of love. It starts with the people around you, and then it goes, it spreads out from there. You know, some people on Wednesday night, they're going to go down to the downtown to the uh, concert down there in the area. Maybe you need to go down there. Maybe you need to hang out. Maybe you need to need some, meet some people. Maybe you need to pray and ask God that he might um, enter into a, allow you to enter into a conversation with someone that you might be able to care about. I mean, going into those places of unknown, it's swinging at the ball and learning how to hit it. That's what God 
has called us to do. You know, we have a vision that God has given us in, in the church. and I've grown up in the church. Um, I've been in church practically all my life. And I know how easy it is for life just to revolve around the church and the people you know at church and the people you feel comfortable with. And uh, God has really gotten our attention over the last few months to say, you know, I have called you to this community. Um, there's a great deal of need right around us in this community. There are people today sitting at home that have no idea how much God loves them, have no idea what God did for them, have no idea what God's offering them. And you know, God has called us to get out there and meet those people, to, to get excited about what God has done in your own life so much so that you really can't help but going out and living that life of love amongst the people in our community. And so, you know, that, that's our swing in the bat. And I just want to encourage all of us, and I want to encourage the men. I want to encourage the men. Because, you know, if, if you hear a dark noise at night in the garage, you don't say, honey, go in there and check it out. <laughs> I mean, we know inherently that's not right. When God gives a church a vision, you don't say, okay, ladies, go do it. And we'll sit home and watch the NBA tournament. We need to lead the way. The gals will join us. They'll work side by side with us. They're very gifted, very talented, very willing to go. But we as men, God's called us to a vision. And uh, I just want to challenge us in that way that we might... Uh, as the Apostle Paul here models so well for us. If we're going to live this Christian life, let's do it with passion and let's give ourselves to it and experience the wonder of what God does as we do that. Father, we thank you this morning for this, your word to us. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. Lord, we are here today. Uh, Lord, if you hadn't used Paul, you'd use somebody else. But... He was the guy, and he was the one that opened himself up to your spirit and, and to your work in him and to just devoting himself to the world in which he lived. And Father, might we do the same. Might we know that you've called us to live a life of love and not run from that, but pour ourselves into it. And uh, as we do, Lord, we will find the life that you've called us to live. Father, we pray now for our offering as we uh, take this. Lord, in just the quietness of this moment, just uh, speak to each one of us as you desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.